Please join me in your Bibles in the book of Revelation. You've heard we're studying the book of Revelation, continuing on in that series. Our scripture passage this morning is in the middle of Revelation chapter 2. You can find it on page 1029 if you're using the pew Bibles that are in front of you. Revelation chapter 2, uh, verses 12 through 17, the letter to the church in Pergamum. Uh, this entire service, uh, we have been delighting in and glorifying the word of the Lord uh, as the source of truth, uh, as, as the thing that pulls us towards truthfulness because God's word knows something about you and me, uh, something that we also know deep down in our souls, and it's this. We can be both true and untrue at the same time, right? You know that from experience. I know that from experience. We can be true and untrue at the very same time. To set the stage for uh, the scripture revealing that uncomfortable truth in our lives, I just want you to imagine uh, being in a crisp clear morning in the New England seaside. Uh, you're, you're on a boat, and you see three men talking. One is looking for a job. The other is reading his Bible, and the third is making fun of him for it. Uh, you, you lean in to, to hear a little bit more. You listen to the conversation, and you hear that the Bible-reading man is unfazed by the direct criticism, direct conflict that he's experiencing. In fact, uh, he pushes back. He warns the man who's making fun of him. He warns him of, about uh, his unrepentant state. Uh, even going so far as to uh, talk about the reality of eternal judgment. He's even willing to quote scripture to this group. He sounds bold. But as you listen in a little closer, you notice something troubling. He's quoting scripture to justify swindling the first man out of a fair wage for his work. And then you look around, and you notice that the crew of the ship, they don't seem to just respect this man. They fear him. He might not curse at them. That would be out of line for a man of his religious convictions. And yet, he seems to be a rather harsh boss. It seems that he's willing to stand up for the truth when it really counts, and yet at the same time he seems unwilling to let that truth fully shape his life. Now this is a scene from the novel Moby Dick, as the narrator meets the self-righteous Captain Bildad, a man of what we would call religious inconsistencies. The author, Herman Melville, describes Captain Bildad's heart like this. He had long since come to the sage and sensible conclusion that a man's religion is one thing and this practical world quite another. A conclusion that we would rightly recognize as untrue. 
So Captain Bildad loved the truth, but he was also compromised by falsehood. It's an uncomfortable scene to read. Just like it's uncomfortable uh, to see examples in church history of a spiritual hero who vigorously defended the truth of God while also engaging in other seemingly smaller falsehoods along the way. We're never quite sure what to do with the revelations that a great theologian or a great apologist also was a racist or a misogynist or an abusive, power-hungry leader. Just like we're never quite sure what to do with ourselves uh, when we boldly stand up for God's truth and then get undone by something more subtle. It's easy to love the truth and also be compromised by falsehood. But Jesus isn't content to just leave us there. He speaks into these uncomfortable realities, and he calls us to become a truly faithful church, a truthful church, by rooting out falsehood, and then by cultivating truthfulness in our hearts and lives. And so with that in mind, brothers and sisters, let's uh, turn our full attention to this word of truth that calls us to be a people of truth. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum writes, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Almighty God, God of truth and life and light, be with us now as we hear your word. Speak to us, O Spirit, and illuminate this word to us and to our hearts so that we would both behold truth and long to be truthful in all our ways. Grant us grace to hear your voice. Call out our sin 
and conform us to the truth, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The uh, theologian Lewis Smedes once wrote that for most people, truthfulness comes very hard. And I think that's such a wise statement. For most people, truthfulness comes very hard. Uh, I I don't know about you, but speaking personally, uh, I've known that to be true in my own life. I have been following Jesus. I've actively been pursuing Christ since the summer of 2002. So 21 years of devotional practices and theological study and apologetic conversations about the truth of God. And as I studied this text this week, I was just reminded of how frequently I also tolerate inconsistencies in my own life. Truthfulness comes very hard. So it is a mercy that Jesus loves us enough to help. This passage is all about truth. The word of God, that sharp two-edged sword confronting the false teaching that compromises our faith. Jesus spoke to this church in Pergamum. He called them, and through this word, he calls us to be and become a truthful church. First by rooting out falsehood, and second, by cultivating truthfulness. That's the roadmap for this morning. Rooting out falsehood, cultivating truthfulness. It's almost like planting a garden. If you want your plants to flourish, then you first need to tear out all the weeds that threaten to choke out your plants to choke out the things that you actually want to grow there. Our path towards truthfulness begins by rooting out falsehood. And here's how to do that. You need to identify the lies that you're tempted to believe, and then you need to repent. It's just like landscaping. If you're going to pull weeds, if you're like me, you go out to the garden and there's just all kinds of greenery there. You're not quite sure what you're supposed to pull out. So, so the first thing you need to do is identify the thing you actually do want to remove, and then you need to remove it. Identify the lies and then repent. And so let's take a look at these weeds, these lies that we are drawn to. This passage shows three of them for us. And here's the first lie. Resistance is futile. When you are faced with an overpowering non-Christian culture, it can feel like resistance is futile. And the only rational option is to give in and abandon the faith completely. Look how strong the opposition was in Pergamum. Jesus says that Satan's throne is there. And then a second time says that Satan dwells there. 
In, in the, the, the usual Roman Empire city, there's going to be all sorts of pagan and emperor worship going on, and that was, that was taking place in Pergamum, but in addition to the usual pagan stuff that was there, Pergamum also had a massive healing cult. And so people would flock to this city, going into all of these pagan temples to try and, and receive healing for their ailments. And these pagan temples that littered this city were covered in serpents, which were the, the symbol of the God of healing, but also for Christians who are trying to read culture with open minds, open hearts and ears. It was also just a reminder of the great demonic presence in their city. And, and the demonic presence proved itself if you, you want to know exactly how much Satan actually lived there, it was because a local Christian leader was killed there. And the other six letters to the other six churches, death is a possibility. In Pergamum, it already happened. Verse 13, uh, in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you. And so it would have been easy for the Christians in Pergamum to believe that resistance was futile. But interestingly enough, they didn't capitulate in the pressure of this ultimate lie. Verse 13 says, Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now this isn't empty praise. It is glorious to stand for Christ when directly confronted. The problem is that the people in Pergamum, they just didn't take their stand for truth all the way. They rejected one big lie and then got snared by two smaller ones. Isn't that so relatable? I, I think most of us, like Captain Bildad on that ship, we can withstand a direct conflict with our faith. There, there's something about a point-blank, direct challenge to our faith that makes us stand firm while at the same time the more subtle lies sneak in and gain a foothold. Like a second, more crafty lie, a little compromise is okay. A little compromise is okay. Verse 14, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Now that is a reference to a story that happens in the Old Testament book of Numbers where an enemy king, King Balak, hired the prophet Balaam to curse the people of Israel. And Balaam tried, but God prevented him from doing that. He was physically unable to curse God's people in a head-on attack, and so he came up with a different 
more subtle attack on them seduced the people of Israel into faithlessness. Uh, This was the scheme that he hatched up. Send some Moabite women into the camp. Tempt the Israelite men into idolatry and sexual immorality. It was crafty. It was lucrative because Balaam was driven by an economic greed. And unfortunately, it was effective. The people of Israel gave in. They were snared by the temptation. Translated into Pergamum, In the Roman Empire, the teaching of Balaam said, it's okay to worship Christ and also participate a little bit in pagan practices, even if they also involve food, idolatry, and immorality. In the Roman Empire, professional and patriotic functions took place at pagan temples. And so a pagan feast at a pagan temple often served double or triple duty. You got to prove that you were a faithful worshiper and a faithful employee and a faithful citizen all at the same time. It's just how business was done. It wouldn't be dissimilar from in our own world, in the DMV, a a sort of professional expectation that good networking requires you to get drunk at a happy hour with the people that you're networking with. The teaching of Balaam said, a little compromise is okay. You stood for Christ. Everyone knows you're a Christian. It's okay to accommodate just a little bit to secure your financial future and your social standing. A little compromise is okay. And that pragmatic lie got some theological support with a third lie. You're free in Christ to do whatever you want. Verse 15, so also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. We don't know much about the Nicolaitans, but the best guess is that they were kind of a Christian offshoot who were teaching that Christians could participate in the pagan practices of the Roman Empire because they weren't under the law of Moses anymore. And so these false teachers tried to harness theology to say, look, you're free in Christ. And so now you can kind of do whatever you want to do. Resistance is futile. A little compromise is okay. You're free in Christ to do what you want. And in in the garden of our hearts, Jesus is saying, identify these lies. See in your own life where you may have embraced these false teachings, and then repent. Don't tolerate the presence of falsehood any more than you would tolerate the presence of English ivy in your garden. Even if it starts out very little, it is eventually going to take over everything. Once you identify the lies, then repent. Verse 14, some of you hold to the teachings of Balaam. Verse 15, some of you hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Verse 16, therefore repent. Acknowledge 
that you haven't taken your stand for Christ all of the way through your life. Admit that you've let your life be compromised by dangerous, seductive lies. Ask for forgiveness. Repent. That is how we can root out the falsehood in our lives because falsehood is bad for us. We, we might be asking even now, why should I do that? Why should I root out falsehood? What's the big deal? And the answer to that question is that falsehood is destructive. The lies that we have read about in this text, they were harmful to God's people. These lies were oppressive. They, they promised freedom, but they end up ruling with pressure and coercion. And it's baked into the names. Uh, the Nicolaitans, based on some founder, we don't know exactly who it is. His name was Nicholas, whose name means one who overcomes the people. And the name Balaam simply means one who rules over the people. These are subtle suggestions that tell us we do not want to be involved with the teaching of people who are oppressive. Now, reading through the text, you might be wondering, how is Jesus any different from that? The Roman Empire kind of said, uh, conform, obey, or else... Isn't Jesus saying the same thing? Verse 16, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. How is this any different than the coercive lies that the Roman Empire served up? And here's how. The Roman Empire said that it had your best interests in mind, but in reality, it only cared about itself. And you can just look at their methods to understand that. They were free to enforce their preferences through fear, intimidation, and shame backed up with the threat of the executioner's sword. Now, compared to that, Jesus actually does have your best interests in mind. And his call to faithfulness is not about preserving the status quo of the Roman Empire. His call to faithfulness is rooted in his deep, eternal love for his people. And his methods of reclaiming his people are not violent. His sword that we hear about twice in this passage, it's not the beheading sword of an executioner. Jesus' sword in this text is his purifying, searching, wise word that convicts and calls out our sin. His encouragement to conquer is not the militaristic conquest that the Roman Empire was so used to. His call to conquer is the encouragement to be faithful, even up to the point of death, even in an external display of weakness in Jesus' hands. Faithfulness is conquering. Jesus is categorically different than the Roman Empire. And he is categorically better. Falsehood is destructive. That's why we should root it out. So why don't we? 
I think that we don't root out falsehood fully because we're afraid. We're afraid of what we might suffer if we don't compromise. We're afraid of lost opportunities or wrecked relationships or social shame. And so we do give ourselves to God. Again, we try to be people of the truth, and yet we, we keep back just a little for ourselves, just a little just in case. I think we're afraid uh, to fully root out that falsehood deep in our lives and our souls. And so that is why Jesus emphatically tells us faithfulness is worth it. Faithfulness is so worth it. It comes with a great reward. Verse 17, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Manna was heavenly food, heavenly provision that pointed forward to the great heavenly feast that Christians will enjoy with God when Jesus comes back. Jesus is saying, you don't need to participate in those pagan feasts. I will give you a feast. I will feed you with heavenly food. A white stone in the Roman Empire was a vote of innocence. Voting members of a court would, uh, when they were rendering their decision, they would place a white stone in a jar to declare the person innocent, a black stone if they declared the person guilty. So Jesus is saying, even if your society says that you are guilty, guilty of being a bad citizen, or an unfaithful worker, or a closed-minded, backwards bigot, I'm going to declare you innocent. And that new name that's written on the stone, the new name is Jesus' own name that he is placing on his people to show that they are his. No one else knows that name because the world is blind to Jesus' greatness. But when Jesus comes again, the entire world will see that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and you will be his. Jesus is saying, even if they reject you, I am going to claim you as my own. We don't need to be afraid of faithfulness. We don't need to be afraid of being a people of truth. We can confidently root out falsehood. And then we can cultivate truthfulness. Back to the landscape. Once you pull out all the weeds, you need to actively cultivate a healthy garden. And so for us, after we have rooted out falsehood by identifying the lies and repenting of them, we need to cultivate truthfulness by remembering the truth, trusting the truth, and being accountable to the truth. First, remember the truth. Here in this text, Jesus reminds us of what we already know. These were familiar images. Ephesians 6, 17, the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. 
Hebrews 4.12, we read it earlier in our uh, assurance of forgiveness. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Even in the book of Revelation, back in chapter 1, we've already heard that Jesus' words are like a sword. These familiar images push us to remember God's truth. Jesus is king. No matter how strong an oppressive government or culture seems, Jesus is king. And so compromise is not okay, even if it seems small or insignificant. Jesus is king. And so we cannot do whatever we want to do. We need to be faithful. Jesus' word calls us to remember the truth of Jesus' kingship. But at the same time, remember, Jesus is king. He is a far better king than any Roman emperor. He's patient and kind. He's a friend of sinners. He, he knows what it's like to suffer because he suffered for us. That's the message of the gospel Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became man and died for us so that we could have eternal life in God. And Jesus doesn't just know what it's like to suffer from his own past experiences. He is with us in our suffering, and he pursues us when we're compromised, just like he pursues the church in Pergamum to call them back to truth. This letter is not the work of a perfectionistic leader who is hounding his people about tiny little errors that they made in their lives. This work is of a suffering Messiah who loves his people enough to call them to fully live into the truth. Cultivate truthfulness by remembering the truth. And then... Trust the truth. It's one thing to be able to quote scripture. It's another thing entirely to believe it. So if we are going to cultivate truthfulness, we need to trust the truth. In the summer of 2002, when I first started to take my faith seriously, I was in a band with uh, a few older guys that I really admired I really appreciated their affirmation. And so I remember being extremely nervous when I was going to tell them that I had had this spiritual awakening and that I wanted to follow Jesus. I knew that I needed to, but I was really worried that they were going to ridicule me or reject me, and that fear exposed my lack of faith. My fear of what they thought of me exposed my lack of faith in Jesus' sufficiency. If Jesus is king and I am his, no one else's opinion matters. And so I needed to trust that. And by the way, they were actually pretty kind to me after my conversion, which is another lesson for another time. What matters for us today 
is that God uses our fears to expose our lack of faith so that we can repent and grow in trust. Everything that we talk about in this passage is rooted in trust. It takes faith to believe that contrary to your outward, uh, the way your outward circumstances look, Jesus is going to feed you, Jesus is going to declare you innocent, and Jesus is going to claim you as his. Those are articles of faith. We embrace them through faith. And so if your faith is flagging this morning, I would urge you, take some time to be with the Lord and pray and ask him to renew your trust. God is happy to help us trust him through the Holy Spirit. And so after you remember the truth, after you trust the truth, then you need to be accountable to the truth. We need to be accountable to the truth. One last reference to Captain Bildad, if you'll permit me. He used the scripture to justify his stinginess instead of letting the scripture work on his stingy heart. He used the the word as a sword against other people. He didn't Let the word slay his own sin personally. And God wants us to be different than that. God wants us to be accountable. Hear the rest of Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of of the heart. God wants his truth to be at work on you, in you. And so let the scriptures name your inconsistencies and call you to repentance and then bring the joy of restoration. Be accountable to the truth. And then we need to be accountable to each other together. Verse 14, but I have a few things against you, y'all, the whole church. And here's what Jesus has against the whole church in Pergamum. Some of them have held to some bad teaching. In other words, Jesus is holding the entire church accountable because they failed to keep each other accountable. They let falsehood take root in their community. Accountability is a whole church thing. And so we need to take that up. I I encourage each of you to invite another fellow Christian into your life so that you can get a second set of eyes on your spiritual landscape. Often it takes the eyes of another person to be able to see where the seeds of falsehood have already started to take root. Uh, Here's how I have tried to apply this principle in my life. I have a phone call with a dear friend uh, almost once a week. And in this relationship, he has full freedom to ask me about anything in my life. 
Full freedom to inquire about any behavior, any past comment I made, anything troubling he sees, anything he might just be worried about. Full freedom. And then he has full freedom. I've given him permission and actually asked him to do this for me. You can ask me if I'm lying to you. He has freedom to say, is there anything you're not telling me? Is there anything that you're reluctant to, to come forth on? This helps me stay truthful. I, I encourage you to be accountable. Now, if that sounds like a recipe for shame, let me encourage you, it doesn't have to be. Because part of holding each other accountable is being gentle and kind and affirming. Whenever you need to call someone else out for their sin, whenever you need to hold someone else accountable, follow Jesus' example here in this text. He is a perfect model for us of how to keep someone else accountable, opening with gentleness, moving to affirmation of success, making a specific Pointed confrontation and then closing with encouragement all the time aimed at the person's health and wholeness. That's how to keep someone accountable. In her book, Living into Community, Christine Pohl says, people who love truth build others up with it rather than using it to tear them down. Much of our truth-telling should involve affirming what is right and good. And that's what Jesus does here. Godly accountability may sting, but done well, it is a productive pain. God is building us up to become a truthful church. And the beautiful thing is, it actually works. Churches can become more truthful. In the year 1800 in America, slavery was the sin of the day. You know your history. Lamentably, countless Christians and Christian churches, churches and people who defended the truth of God, who proclaimed and upheld the truth of Jesus Christ. Multiple of these churches were entrenched in the repulsive lie that some people were inferior to other people and therefore it was appropriate to enslave them. Slaveholding, uh, it was an acceptable practice in many churches, including uh, one denomination called the Reformed Presbyterian Church until a man named Alexander McLeod was called to be a pastor there. McLeod knew that slavery was against God's law, and he stood up for it. In the year 1800, two churches in the state of New York called him to be their pastor, but because there were slaveholders, active slaveholders, who were voting members of that call, he refused to take the job. And that forced the local presbytery to actually debate the matter. And at his 
urging, the presbytery decided that all slaveholders in their churches could not receive communion until they had freed all of their slaves and repented of their sin. And amazingly enough, they all did. The churches actually did that. And then uh, the reform didn't stop there. It spread from the state of New York. The Presbytery sent a delegation to the rest of their congregations all along the eastern coast declaring that slaveholding was a sin that barred people from the Lord's Supper. And the message was effective. There's this great section in his memoir that talks about the commission going to South Carolina a bastion of southern slaveholding to tell the congregations there uh, all of this decree. And in South Carolina, every single person in their congregations except one complied. They all freed their slaves and then repented of their sin. The end result of this work is that in McLeod's own words, slavery in the Reformed Presbyterian Church had been annihilated. It was a significant step on the path to truthfulness. They identified a lie. They repented. They remembered the truth. They trusted the truth. They were accountable to the truth and the result was beautiful. That's what happens when we root out falsehood and cultivate truthfulness. Yes, we will always have struggles. Yes, we will have blind spots, but we are not doomed to a life of significant compromise. God's people can change. Even you, even me by entrusting ourselves to the word of God, we can become a truthful church. Let's pray. Lord, we lament the inconsistencies in our lives, and this word plows up a lot of them. We apologize for the lies that we have, have believed and practiced. We ask your forgiveness uh, we ask for reformation. Bring your truth into our lives. Keep us accountable. Help us, O oh God, to become truthful. It is hard for so many of us. But we pray for your spirit. We pray for your patience. And we pray for your strength to continue making us a truthful church so that we would be able to shine your truth to the world and the world would be able to see your glory and come into your kingdom in repentance. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.